The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live. I'm Jillian Berman, a reporter and editor at MarketWatch, where I write about student loans and consumer debt. Um, Today, we're going to talk about student loans, a really hot topic right now. Um, And we're really lucky to have Betsy Mayotte, the founder of the Institute of Student Loan Advisors, uh, to share some of her expertise and answer your questions. Welcome, Betsy. Thanks. All right. Okay, so let's get right to it. Um, The first thing I want to talk about is you know, the Biden administration made an announcement yesterday on some changes, fixes, I don't know how you want to call it, um, to PSLF, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, um, which is a debt relief program for people who have been working in public service and paying on their student loans for at least 10 years. Um, And I'm wondering if you can just, you know, give a rundown of what borrowers who are interested in taking advantage of these changes need to know. Well, yesterday's announcement really had sort of two and a half parts. Uh, There was one part that has more to do, we're calling it the Income Driven Plan Waiver or the IDR Waiver. Uh, Another part uh, has to do with some upcoming permanent changes to public service loan forgiveness. And then the half part is the piece of the Income Driven Plan Waiver that sort of ends up dovetailing a bit with the current public service loan forgiveness waiver. So I'm gonna start with the upcoming changes. Uh, Sometime next week, likely Monday or Tuesday, we're expecting the Department of Education to publish the final version, the official version of some new regulations that affect actually a lot of borrower benefits. Uh, But one piece of it is public service loan forgiveness. Now, some of the changes, uh, now they sort of gave us in yesterday's announcement a sort of a sneak peek of what some of those permanent changes to PSLF are going to be. Some of the big whammies there uh, that I think borrowers are gonna be really excited about and a lot will benefit from is they're changing the definition of eligible employment. Um, It currently under traditional PSLF rules, you do have to be working not only at least 30 hours a week, but you do need to be considered full-time by your PSLF eligible employer. After these final rules are implemented, uh, it's just going to be the 30-hour-a-week mark. It won't matter at all whether your employer considers you a full-time employee or not. On a related note, uh, adjunct professors have always sort of gotten the short end of the stick because what, and this was a, a learning point for me, the vast majority of colleges and universities do not consider adjunct professors full-time employees, regardless of how many hours they work. So what these new rules appear to do is create an algorithm that will allow adjunct professors to potentially use their employment, assuming they're working for a university that's an eligible employer, uh, eligible for PSLF. What they're doing is for every credit hour the adjunct works, they're multiplying it by, I believe, 3.35%, which essentially works out if you're working 30 hours a week, it's going to give you 30 hours a week. Um, they are permanently eliminating the rules that in order for a PSLF payment to count, that it needs to be on time. 
Uh, I'm certainly not encouraging people to be late on their payments because it can negatively, it will negatively affect their credit and have and potentially lead to default. But what it won't do going forward is uh, make it so that month won't count for PSLF. Now, one important caveat I want to add to all of this is that while we don't know what the effective date of these new rules is going to be, and not only do we not know what the effective date is going to be, almost more importantly, we don't know if these rules are going to be retroactive or prospective. So it's very possible that uh, the rule won't be effective till July 1st, 2023, which is when most new regulations become effective. And it's possible that it'll only mean for payments made or employment worked on or after July 1st, 2023. But it's also possible the Department of Ed could decide to implement this early. And we're not going to know the answer to those questions until those final rules are published on Monday or Tuesday. Great. And and so now, okay, so you've, you've talked about sort of the more permanent fixes going forward. Can you talk a little bit about, I think what you, you described as maybe that like half step, <laughs> you know, sort of what, um, you know, you know, what are, what are some one-time fixes that, you know, that borrowers should know about and prepare themselves for? Yeah. So let's talk about the other, uh, big one and a half pieces of yesterday's announcement. Um, so a lot of this, they sort of teased us with back in April, uh, which was they announced that they were going to be doing a one-time adjustment related to income-driven plan uh, accounts um, or just income-driven plans in general. So just to back up a little bit and set the stage, um, under the income-driven plans, uh, if a borrower is on the plan for either 20 or 25 years, and that depends on which plan they're on, it might also uh, hinge on what type of loans they have, whether they have undergraduate loans or graduate loans. Um, but if they're on the plan for 20 or 25 years, currently the law and regulation says that the balance will be, any balance that's left over at the end of that 20 or 25 years is forgiven. Now, uh, what they're doing with this adjustment is they're going to be giving borrowers credit for every single month that they've been in repayment towards the IDR forgiveness, regardless of whether they've been on an IDR plan. So, for example, let's say they adjust your account, Jillian, uh, in you know July of 2023. And maybe you've been on an income-driven plan for 12 months, so you have 12 months towards the uh, 240 or uh, 300 payments you need for IDR forgiveness. But you've actually been in repayment on your loans for 10 years. After they make that one-time adjustment, you're going to have 120 credits towards the 240 or 300 you need. Now, in order to actually get forgiveness in that scenario, if this was a true scenario for you, Jillian, you would still need to get on an income-driven plan and stay on it for your remaining 10 or 15 years that you had left to get forgiveness. However, there are going to be borrowers that have already been in repayment since the dawn of time uh, <laughs> that will end up getting forgiveness right away once they make this adjustment. Um, in mm -hmm. addition to that, and by the way, they're counting every month. Uh, it doesn't matter if you were late. It doesn't matter what payment plan you were on. In some cases, they're even going to be counting periods of deferment and forbearance, which is really out of like something we've never seen before. Um, most borrowers aren't going to have to do a darn thing 
to get this adjustment. It's just going to magically happen on their account one day. Uh, but there are borrowers that have uh, what we call commercially held federal family education loan program loans. So basically loans that have not been eligible for the COVID pause, those borrowers will have to consolidate by May 1st in order to have this one-time adjustment done on their account. Now where this, here's the half part, <laughs> where this IDR waiver dovetails with the public service loan forgiveness temporary waiver is that for much of the PSLF waiver, it's actually, now we know that that temporary waiver has a very hard stop of Monday, uh, October 31st. Um, this IDR waiver is creating sort of a backdoor extension for probably 80, 85% of the softening of the rules that's existed under this temporary PSLF waiver. So with the exception of Parent PLUS loans, uh, for borrowers that have been working in public service, working for a public service eligible employer, as long as they take, um, as long as they have submitted proof of eligible employment by October 31st, uh, they will be able to still get credit under the temporary waiver rules once they make this IDR adjustment on the account. Um, in addition, if some of their deferment and forbearance time ends up counting towards income, an income-driven plan forgiveness, assuming that borrower was working for an eligible employer during those periods of deferment and forbearance, they'll also get PSLF credit for it. Great. Yeah. And so you mentioned that it's sort of that the announcement yesterday is like kind of a backdoor extension to the PSLF waiver, but who, um, you know, must apply by October 31st, um, you know, for whom does it, the extension, there's no backdoor, you got to get it in by October 31st. Really, there's really only two pieces that aren't uh, taken, that aren't sort of extended because of this IDR waiver. Uh, that So in other words, they're part of the temporary PSLF waiver. They are not a part of this IDR waiver. And those two pieces, um, uh, the first one is uh, usually you can't double dip on most of the federal forgiveness programs. So for borrowers that worked for five consecutive years for a low-income school and in the past have received five to 17-5 in forgiveness under the teacher loan forgiveness program, Normally, you can't then turn around and use the same five years towards PSLF. If you don't um, do what you need to do by 1031, uh, that will be gone forever. They only allowed the double dip during this temporary PSLF waiver, and that is not part of the IDR waiver. The other piece that I think affects probably more people is the fact that not only um, under traditional PSLF rules, not only do you have to be working for an eligible employer at the time you make every single one of those 120 payments, you also have to be working for an eligible employer at the time that you apply for forgiveness under PSLF and at the time the, the government reviews your account for forgiveness, which can be several months later. Uh, that was waived during the temporary waiver. And what I found is there were quite a few borrowers who have actually retired or maybe they left public service um, being unaware of the program, so they never took advantage of it. And they were able to sort of have a Hail Mary pass, and they were able to get forgiveness um, under the temporary waiver, even though they were, because they already had the 10 years, they just were no longer working in public service. 
Um, if that's you, then you a thousand percent need to make sure you submit your proof of eligible employment by 1031. And if you have to consolidate, make sure you've submitted a consolidation application by then as well. Great. Yeah. And I've definitely, I too have spoken to a lot of borrowers who um, retired and, you know, are now, they, they were really career public servants, um, you know, but, but, and paid their loans that whole time. Um, and so they took, you know, they've been taking advantage of this. Um, so if that's you, you know, get, get in line, fill out that paperwork. Um, and just a reminder, we are taking questions. We already have a few in the queue. So if you have any questions for Betsy, um, you know, about anything student loan related, please send them over. Um, okay, so let's switch gears now to talk about broader student debt relief. Um, so, you know, can you just tell the tell everyone, you know, kind of the basics? I mean, I, presumably many people have heard <laughs> it's been out in the news, but in at case least you 22 million people have heard about it. Yes. Exactly. At least 22 million people. But in case you missed it, who's eligible and how much, you know, relief is available? So this is for federal student loan borrowers only. And once again, unfortunately, um, due to some litigation, they've at least temporarily, we hope they find a way to bring them back, but they've at least temporarily excluded uh, federal family education loan program loans and Perkins loans that aren't held by the Department of Education. So again, if your loan has not been eligible for the COVID pause, meaning you um, your payments have not been on hold since March of 2020, and you're not enjoying a 0% interest rate right now, you are not eligible for this broad debt relief. Uh, but everybody whose loans have been eligible for the pause, they are potentially eligible for the debt relief. And the eligibility requirements are that you, um, for a single person, your adjusted gross income for either 2020 or 2021 was below $125,000. Uh, if you're married, if you're a married couple or head of household, uh, that income limit uh, is adjusted gross income of no more than $250,000. I just want to reemphasize it's either. So if you made $4 million in 2020, but you made $124,000 in 2021, you're eligible. Now, this debt relief forgives up to $10,000 for most of those borrowers. However, if at any point in your academic career you ever received a Pell Grant, then you can receive up to $20,000 in, in debt relief. Uh, and to get this, now there's about 8 million people that are automatic. Uh, if you're an automatic person, you probably already received an email saying, hey, we've got what we need to give you debt relief. If you don't want it, here's how you opt out. But everybody else is going to have to apply. You apply at studentaid.gov. Uh, the, the, if you haven't been on studentaid.gov in a while, the, the link to the application is going to pop right up as soon as you go on there. Uh, the application takes like less than five minutes. You don't have to log in. You don't have to upload any documents. Uh, you just need to know your social security number is really the only thing that you might have to go fetch before you sit down and do this. And again, you could do it, you know, while you're on hold waiting to order a pizza. Um, it really is, it, the application's that easy and that quick. Great. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as discussed, you know, at least at the outset, nobody is going to, you don't have to upload any documents, right? It's just, you know, just 
fill fill out the form, but there is a possibility maybe down the line that you you might that some people might. Can you just talk about that in case people want to keep an eye out for it later, you know, down the line? Yeah. So it was super important to the Department of Education to make the application as easy as possible. And the reason for that is historically data has shown that if the application process is complicated, it tends to exclude the very people you're trying to help the most vulnerable borrowers, because maybe they don't have access to a scanner or maybe they don't have access to uh, easy access to, you know, prior year tax documents and so on. So, but on the other hand, they want to make sure that they protect the U.S. taxpayer money from people that, um, whose moral compass might be off a little bit and might be considering fibbing about their income in order to get this debt relief. So they've created an algorithm um, to identify uh, borrowers that they think may not have uh, accurately stated their income as part of the application. And those borrowers, and there's also going to be sort of a random yeah, a random check. So uh, up to around 5 million borrowers are going to be asked to verify their income. Uh, and they'll get an email from the Department of Ed about that. They will not get the debt relief until they do verify that income if they're one of the chosen. And to do that, they'll have to submit one of three things, either a tax return from, so your 1040 from either 2020 or 2021, your tax transcript from either one of those years. And, you know, obviously you want to submit the year that shows that you were making within the income threshold, or if you didn't file taxes, a letter from the, the, the determination letter from the IRS that confirms that you weren't required to file taxes. And you can, if you don't have that letter, you can get it. There's instructions on how to get it at irs.gov. Great. Um, great. And so that's, you know, that's maybe down the line, just after you su hit submit, you know, keep an eye out in case, you know, you receive any follow-up communication. But the vast majority of people, like Betsy said, you know, kind of all you, you're going to have to do is fill out that form and hit submit. Yeah. I mean, you definitely want to whitelist the emails. Like when you submit your application, you're going to get an email if you didn't check your spam folder and whitelist it, because if you miss out, if you end up being one of the people that has to verify their income and you don't submit that by March of, of 2023, then you cannot get the debt relief and you will never get the debt relief. So that's, you know, that's a 10 or $20,000 email that could end up in the spam folder. You don't want to miss it. Yes. Yeah. Good tip. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and so, okay. So right now the, you know, that debt relief plan is facing some legal challenges, um, you know, coming from a few different angles. Um, and can you, I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about, you know, how borrowers should be thinking about those those legal challenges, like what they should be doing as those work their way through the court system. Nothing. <laughs> um, you know, as a general rule, borrowers aren't going to be able to affect the uh, whether uh, a case has standing or not, or what how the judge is going to decide. Uh, if borrowers did want to do something, uh, you know, to be to be candid, there would not be a risk, any risk at all, in the court system if Congress wrote this debt relief into law. So, if someone wanted to make noise, they should be writing their members of Congress and encouraging them to legislate uh, this debt relief to make sure that it is preserved uh, and that it's not at any risk in the court system. Um, other than that, just try not to lose sleep over it. 
Um, you know, I'm not an attorney. Uh, I also don't play an attorney on TV. Um, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But in my opinion, the vast majority of the cases that have been filed uh, have no teeth. Um, there is one case that had some teeth, uh, but the, and that was the case that was filed by the six state attorney general's offices. But very quickly, like within hours after that case was filed, the Department of, a of Education or the White House took action, which was a, a hard action to take. Uh, but and essentially what they did is they sacrificed the few to save the many because by uh, eliminating the ability for these commercially held fell borrowers to be able to uh, benefit from the debt relief, they took a lot of the teeth away from this court case. Uh, so I would be very surprised if that particular case went any further than where it is right now. Great. Yeah. And, and just, you know, for everyone's knowledge, it's, um, it's at the court of appeals. They, it was um, dismissed in the lower courts, but they've appealed. So, um, and we're, we'll see, uh, you know, what uh, an appellate court says about it. Um, and also in the meantime, right, they've, you know, while these things are working their way through the legal system, the application it remains open, right? So it's, just it remains open and the Department of Ed and the White House are encouraging people to fill it out. Um, the, what this injunction has done, it hasn't stopped the program altogether. It has just required the Department of Asia, Education to not actually forgive anything yet. Um, and until the court makes their decision, they're not, but we think that's going to happen quick. I mean, I, th I believe they required argument, written arguments from the plaintiff on Monday and the Department of Ed's response on Tuesday. That's pretty fast. So I predict that they are looking to resolve this, you know, maybe even this week. But like, that's a guess, on, again, a guess on my part. Yeah, great. Okay, let's turn, we have a couple questions. So let's turn to those now. And again, if you have any, um, please submit them. Um, the first comes from Ty and and their question is, could students who apply and receive forgiveness have to pay taxes on the amount forgiven? Maybe uh, if you are unlucky enough to live in one of the four states that is still considering taxing the debt relief. Now to be clear, public service loan forgiveness is never taxed on either the state or federal level. Um, income driven plan forgiveness is uh, not taxed on the federal level, at least through 2025. <coughs> um, and this broad debt relief is also not being taxed on the federal level. But there are four states that are uh, still considering taxing it. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get a tax bill for 10 grand. It is going to be applied like any other income. So most people, if they are taxed, it will have a very small effect on their overall tax refund, tax bill, whatever it turns out to be. Who needs to worry about it more are people in those states who are receiving some sort of benefit, like a housing benefit, for example, that is based on their income. They want to make sure that this debt relief, if it is taxed in their state, isn't going to, sorry, that's yeah. Alice with student loan cat. Um, <laughs> is not going to put them over the income threshold for that particular benefit. Got it. Okay, great. Um, and then this is a question actually not related to any of the, you know, sort of debt relief, um, you know, debt relief programs. This is sort of more of an evergreen question from Allison, um, who asks, what recommendations do you have for borrowing for law school? You know, we have, it's so funny that you asked me that question because we have a frequently used phrase 
uh, within the student loan industry. And that phrase is, if you live like a lawyer when you're a student, you're going to live like a student when you're a lawyer. When you're a lawyer. <laughs> and what that means is borrow the least amount possible. Um, you know, I know that's not ideal, but it could mean maybe going part-time to reduce how much you have to borrow so you can still work. Uh, the other thing is to make sure you understand what the return on investment is whatever field of law that you're going to go into, uh, is it something that's going, and then, you know, try to estimate the amount of debt that you would take on uh, as a result of that. And is, is it going to be an amount that you're going to be able to pay comfortably? Uh, also, I would strongly recommend, and I, this is not just for people in law school, this is everybody, uh, to at least pay the interest while you're in school. That alone will save you buckets of buckets of money. Great. Yeah. Good advice. And and that is, um, that's advice for all time, not just when <laughs> there are, you know, various announcements about um, debt forgiveness, uh, you know, sort of going on. Um, okay. Let's dig into, you know, you mentioned, you've mentioned this a couple of times, um, but borrowers with commercially held fell loans. Let's dig in a little bit more to, to those borrowers, um, you know, and, and can you talk a little bit about, um, and, you know, again, I, you, you've talked a little bit about already, but how, First of all, how do you know if you have one of these loans? How can you figure it out if you know, figure out if one of your loans is part of this group? There's a whole bunch of different ways. The easiest way is call your loan servicer and ask them. Mm -hmm. um, one thing to keep in mind is they have not made any new fell loans since June 30th of 2010. So if you log on to your student loan account and you look at the disbursement date, if that disbursement date, which is going to be under the loan details, is on or after July 1st of 2010, you know it's not a fell. Um, if neither of those things work, again, logging on to your student loan account, most servicers, if it's a fell loan, it's going to say fell loan. Um, another way to do it is to log on to studentaid.gov and look up the loan detail and look at who... Uh, the lender is, if it says Department of Education, it might still be a fell, but it is going to be one that's owned by the Department of Education outright. And there's probably about 10% of fell loans are actually owned by the Department of Ed outright. And those do tend to qualify for all the things we've been talking about. Not all of them, but most of them. Now, in most cases, with the exception of the broad debt relief, if you do have a commercially held fell, you can make it a direct loan and therefore prospectively eligible for most of the things we're talking about, again, except for the debt relief, by consolidating it into the direct loan program, which you would do again at studentaid.gov. Great. And can we, and so now let's talk a little bit about how exactly it happened that these commercially held fell loans um, are not a part of the. Um, are, are not a part of the broad-based cancellation. And as of right now, there's not a pathway to make them. Part of All right. Them. So let's tell a story. So once upon a time, <laughs> uh, there used to be two primary federal student loan programs. There was this FELL program and starting in 1994, and that was like the, really the very first federal student loan back. It was called something different, but back in 1956 when they gave out the very first federal student loan. Again, it was called something different, but it was essentially a fell loan. And then in 1994, uh, they, the Congress created the direct loan program. Now, at that point, uh, up until 2010, both programs were exactly the same, except where they were different. 
They both had subsidized and unsubsidized Stafford loans. They both had graduate plus. They both had parent plus. They both had consolidation. They had the same, for the most part, they had the same interest rates. They were eligible for the same repayment plans. They uh, were eligible for the same deferments. Um, and back before 2010, whether you got a FELL loan or whether you got a direct loan was completely up to your school. Colleges and universities were allowed to only issue loans under one or the other. And 80 or 85% of the schools chose the FELL program. Uh, and the reason for that varies. A lot of critics say that they got the schools got better service from the FELL people than they did from the direct loan servicer. I guess it, it doesn't sort of matter at this point. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is the borrower had no choice. And most people got FELL loans. Well, then in 2010, Congress said, no more FELL. We're just doing the direct loan program. We're, we want to eliminate the middleman, so to speak. So all Stafford and PLUS and consolidation loans made after July 1st, 2010 were direct loans. Now, since then, the programs have sort of diverged as Congress has created new options for relief for borrowers, such as almost all of the income-driven plans, such as public service loan forgiveness, uh, such as this debt relief, in order to keep costs down from a budgetary perspective, they have sort of treated these fell, fell loans as the, as they call it, the redheaded stepchild and eliminated them from eligibility from these programs. Some of it's political. Um, fell is very much seen as the Republican program and direct loan is very much seen as the, is the Democrat program. Um, so, you know, it, it's no decision the borrower ever made. It's not advice that you got back in the day because, you know, when these decisions were being made, PSLF and these income-driven plans and certainly the debt relief were not something that anybody even imagined would ever happen. Um, it's just, it, it comes down to, to bad luck. Right. Exactly. And, um, and so I think we only have, we have about a minute left, <laughs> but um, you know, there's, there are some people who are kind of caught in a, a little bit of a tricky situation. Um, you know, maybe they are interested in PSLF um, or interested in the broad-based debt relief and have one of these commercially held fell loans. Um, can you talk, you know, sort of just talk a little bit about how someone might decide whether or not to consolidate um, in that scenario? Yeah. So up until yesterday, those people were sort of in a Sophie's Choice situation because by consolidating by October 31st, those commercially held fell. If they also had some direct loans that were eligible for debt relief, they would have made them ineligible for the debt relief. But now because of yesterday's announcement, there's a little more hope to be able to qualify for both. So again, with the exception of not being able to double dip for teacher loan forgiveness and making, you know, the ability to not be actually still working for an eligible employer, um, you can wait till May uh, to consolidate um, these loans for PSLF. So for those people, I'd apply for the debt relief today. And then as soon as it's applied to your account, consolidate and submit that proof of eligible employment before May 1st. Great. Yeah. Great tips. Um, all right. I think that's all the time that we have, but thanks Betsy for joining us and thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, stay well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.